You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast, and I have Dr. Charles Samuels. He's a medical director at the Center for Sleep and Human Performance in Calgary, Alberta, and the president of the Canadian Sleep Society. So, uh, Charles, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, tell me about um, your interest in sleep. Why Why did you choose such a field and then uh, get to such a high level in it? What What like motivates you and what do you like about it? It's it's interesting actually because I, I, that question I always <clears throat> I get asked that question a lot and I I have had to actually think about that and um, in the end I come up with the same story I was a family physician in a rural area in southern Alberta here in um, uh, Canada and um, I uh, one night drove back from the hospital to my home which was about 20 kilometers away and in the middle of nowhere in the prairies so it was a long dirt road off the highway and i uh, actually fell asleep while driving at two in the morning um and drove straight to the end of the road which was a long way and i stopped at the edge of a lake with my front wheel in the water so it was the weirdest experience and this is many years ago this is like in the mid 90s um early 90s And um, so this was fascinating to me. Was I was doing a lot of call. We were very sleep deprived, and this was like very weird. And um, I'd had other incidents of weird things happening because I was so sleep deprived, and we were overworked and whatnot, um, being on call. And so I became fascinated with what happens to the brain and sleep. My uh, colleagues were there was a lot of uh, a lot a lot of discontent in the medical world in rural medicine. And I started to look at just the sleep issues of my colleagues, just not getting enough sleep, forget sleep disorders like sleep apnea and whatnot. So I became interested in sleep. And then I actually got approached by a colleague to um, work in a sleep clinic in the city. And I became absolutely enamored with the science of uh, sleep research and sleep medicine. And I shifted careers from family medicine and did my fellowship in the United States uh, and got my boards and have been doing this since the mid '90s, mid to late '90s. Well, thank God when they asked you to work in the sleep center, you didn't say I'm too tired. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> I was pretty tired. And I look back at that and wonder, you know, and I have many colleagues who are now my age in their 60s still doing uh, on-call work, and it's it's very hard on people. So I've carved out a research career in two domains. One is law enforcement in the military, looking at sleep deprivation and shift work and its impact on health and uh, uh, mental health, uh, physical health and mental health. And then also, um, more recently in the last 10 years, I shifted into elite athletics. So I was funded by um, an organization in Canada called Own the Podium, which supports high-level research for the Olympic team. And um, we've done some, you know, sort of uh, basic um, world-renowned research in sleep screening and elite athletics. And now we've developed um, interventions and, and, and programs for managing athletes and teams that we get requests from around the world for. Well, when thinking about sleep for uh, medical professionals for a start, I mean, it seems really foolish to me to haze them and make them work, you know, 30-plus hour shifts because they're not going to do well. They're not going to be able to think and function, and it, it serves no one except to just, I don't know, get literally haze people like as if you were a fraternity. Well, you know, I was recently asked that on an interview with a uh, well-known interviewer here in Canada in Vancouver and the Charles Adler show, and you know, Charles was actually asking the same question about shift work and the implications. So I don't actually take that view that you take, but I am a doctor and I have done it. I am not the patient or the public. So, and and I have been deeply involved in managing these issues on a national level for the Canadian Medical Association and our local College of Physicians and Surgeons. You know, in other words, what are the work hour regulations that are reasonable for physicians, given the fact that hospitals have to be staffed, um, physicians must be available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So I'm one of these people who tries to explain to leaders and policymakers that there's a balance here. And what we've ignored for centuries is human health. So let's let's at least pay attention to the human health consequences um, of this. And then also, without question, the the patient safety issues. So this has become, in the United States for sure, a major issue since the 1980s as a result of one specific case in the state of New York. But there's been tremendous controversy because physicians, residents, want to work long hours in order to learn. But there's a threshold there. There's a point at which there's no learning going on. And we're and we're trying to become I think your show this is your show is interesting because it's about what's the future. And not this isn't technology. This is just human human um performance. And that's what my interest is is how far can we push the human brain before it fails is really what I'm quite interested in. So well, I, I would, ask you what did, what did you find with, with shift workers, first of all, like where was the um the cutoff or the range where they just they were became useless, I guess you could put it in a way, or they became so dysfunctional they couldn't think and they were just a mess. So first of all, it's very important to understand that there's tremendous inter-individual differences between the way you or I would tolerate a specific shift schedule. So that's very important to understand. And of course, that's not the way shift workers are managed. They're managed by some guy who sets up the shifts and just needs people on the line, as it were. So we're now asked by industries to solve this problem that you're raising. And in fact, just in January, they've struck an international committee of people that will meet in the United States in April 
to discuss this very issue, like how do we advise industry from an occupational medicine perspective. So currently, what we know for sure is this, that a reasonable work hour to maintain a healthy, safe individual is 40 to 45, 48 hours a week. That's reasonable. When you start going from 50 to 60, it's becoming risky but manageable. When you exceed 60 hours, you're for most workers, you know, I'm going to say, I'm going to speculate, more than 70% workers are going to have some downstream negative consequence. But that is based on the individual, the sex, male, female, and the age is critical. So younger workers can tolerate very significant um, excessive work hours. Um, but when you... The yeah, that's what I was going to... Yeah. Right, that's what I was going to ask you is I know everyone's different, so what's the variation in that? So, you know, anyway, sorry to interrupt, but you're explaining what's, what's some of the variation you see. Yeah, and, and so your point of what's a cutoff, well, one cutoff we know for sure is the age of 40. So we know that a worker, shift workers, certainly between the ages of 40 and 45, for the most part, I'd say like 80%, will tell you, oh, yeah, once I hit 40, it made a difference. Some will comment, it wasn't really the age, but it was when we started having children, let's say. Um, but but there is definitely an age difference, and it's somewhere around late 30s, early 40s, where people have less tolerance. For whatever reasons, we don't know. There are many. Um, so your next quick, question. Quick question. Um, go ahead. Oh, well, well okay. Um, I was going to ask you, too, maybe I'm jumping the gun. Is there a point at which people get sleep deprived for long enough that it causes a uh, a permanent change or a change that takes a very long time to undo you know do they get at what point are they permanently damaged by such a thing or their chronotype gets messed up or other yeah. things happen to them that you know are maybe irreversible or again take a long time to fix so uh, there's no question uh, now i'm not going to say irreversible and permanently damaged i would never say those terms so what i would say is that um, there's definite long-term consequences to the um, ill effects, uh, and there are two areas of ill effects, um, of r- r- rotating shift work. So it's important to understand that one factor is total sleep time, so cumulative sleep loss over many years. No question that there are significant cardiovascular and metabolic consequences to doing that, re- reducing your sleep. The other is um, circadian disruption, and again, cardiovascular, metabolic, dis- uh, negative effects of both the cardiovascular system and the metabolic system. Those are simply, okay. very simply, hypertension, coronary artery disease, obesity, and diabetes, for sure. Okay. All right. So, um, are there recommendations now that are in use in Canada and you know and in the United States and uh, or are they still formulating them? Um, well, there are and so, well, so transportation is way ahead of everybody in the United States and the United States is way ahead of everybody except the European Union on starting to regulate. So there's definitely attempts. Canada is behind everybody. This group that's meeting is bringing all of that information from around the world, trying to come up with recommendations for governments. Because governments are now asking, like, what do we do with this? They don't, and industry, 
they ju- they're getting different opinions and they want a collective expert opinion. Um, so I serve one purpose on that committee. There are other um, people who are on the committee from different areas of occupational sleep medicine. You know, it just occurred to me, you know, in Canada, you're in, you know, further in the north. So you get more extremes in terms of sunlight exposure. Yes. Have you seen um, any correlation there, uh, the effects Absolutely. of sleep deprivation in an environment like in the summer where you get tremendous amounts of sun versus the winter where you get very little sun? Yeah, absolutely. So it's not so much sleep deprivation that's affected, but um, sleep quality can be affected and mood is affected. So we're actually experts in the world as well as our colleagues in the Netherlands and whatnot because we deal with this on a daily basis of using light therapy for managing circadian disruption and seasonal change and its effect negative effect on sleep, which sort of drifts into seasonal affective disorder, which is winter depression. So we we have lots of experience techniques in using light therapy and and melatonin in managing people's, um, the stability of people's chronotype and sleep phase, which when disturbed has all kinds of negative effects. Yeah, I had to ask someone else this. you know, I know that there's different chronotypes, but uh, it seems like anyone that works the overnight shift, regardless of what their chronotype is, seems to have, uh, you know, it, le- it seems to lead to a lot of physical ailments. Do you think that regardless of your chronotype, no one should really work, uh, you know, the overnight if at all possible and sleep oh. during the day and go, you know, wake up at night or is it is it workable? Okay, again, I would never say no one. You know, I wouldn't <laughs> say that. No, um, I would say that your your basic assumption that night work is the worst shift is absolutely correct for the most workers there's no question so night work is where we see the most um clinical negative consequences in shift workers it, but it does depend on how much night work they do how much they rotate and how resistant or resilient they are so those are all the factors that go into it. So there's this tiny little population of night owls, so night people, who tolerate night shift and rotating shift work actually quite well. But they're not men. I guess there's a, yeah, there'd be a difference between night shift consistently and then rotating, which is probably far worse than uh, yes, maybe a static night shift. Yeah, it is. Yeah, there's no question. So people who do permanent nights and adapt to permanent nights can do reasonably well, relatively speaking, but not as well as a regular day worker, you know, working nine to five. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, if you're uh, nights nights for two weeks and then days for two weeks and, you know, back and forth and back and forth, I would guess that would be the most detrimental. No, actually, um, so it's, uh, you know, the fact is that intermediate rotating shifts are absolutely the worst. So hmm. rotating quickly, so so we have the fire department here does, let's, for as an example, would do um, two 12s um, of days and two nights of, sorry, two 12-hour shifts, day shift, followed by two 10-hour shifts, night shift. And that's hmm. a li- little bit better. And then they get a period of four to six days off. So it's always about recovery and shift work. It's 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 about managing the the uh, the rotating, but then getting the recovery afterwards for stability. So so that would be an okay shift range for a certain age group of people. But when you have sort of a a five day shift rotation over 
in a cycle of uh, 25 to 28 days, that becomes quite disruptive and difficult to mm. manage. Okay. And I've, I've been curious too about uh, people that, you know, are awake at uh, different times from, you know, the traditional morning wakers. Has anyone observed what happens to their hormones? Do they peak and trough at the same times, regardless of sleep cycle, or do they follow the sleep cycle? So that's a very interesting question, actually. So it depends on the the hormone. So some hormones are linked to the the sleep state. Some are actually linked to the circadian rhythm. So that, that which is really fascinating, actually. So so the the um, the release of cortisol is tied to the circadian rhythm, and it it maintains its pattern regardless but the problem is that it it starts to become quite disturbed over time and so that's a very interesting finding um the release of thyroid hormone is different and so there's no question that we will see in shift work changes in their blood work that are probably in some cases related to the fact that they do shift work hmm. okay interesting and then you mentioned uh, i guess on a probably a happier note uh athletes so what are yeah. some of the uh, interesting things that you found in working with uh, athletes and athletic performance? So I guess the really important thing is that we um, we started this in, you know, the early 2000s that I started working with my sports medicine colleagues at the University of Calgary. And we're, we're the sort of home for all winter sport in Canada. So the Olympic, the winter Olympic teams train out of uh, Calgary for the most part. So we have a lot of athletes coming through here and so the sport docs were noticing two things, the long distance sports, so longer distance swimmers, and certainly in cross country, we were seeing lots of overtraining under recovery, you know, in the 90s, where we would start to lose good athletes a little bit too early in their career. And so they were coming to ask me because they started to notice that some of these athletes were having significant sleep problems and it was consistent. These guys didn't know anything about sleep. And so we really had to develop a technique for screening athletes for sleep disturbance. And so I then started a research project that took 13 years to complete. Um, and we have just completed it and developed an app for screening elite athletes. So we have an online system here at the Center for Sleep and a whole program where athletes can just go online, screen their sleep, and then get the help that they need. Because these athletes at a high level are traveling all the time. So we developed quite a comprehensive method of screening athletes, educating athletes, and treating athletes that had problems. And our goal was to really find those that small percentage of athletes, which turns out to be 5 to 10% of athletes who have an actual clinical problem that needs intervention versus the 80 90 percent who just need education so um that was a the focus of our research um, and it was all focused around what is what is the relationship of sleep to elite athletic performance and now we have a very good understanding of how important sleep is to the process of recovery and then the downstream ability to train the athlete harder which is always the goal right and what the coaches would find is that an under an, a, a poorly rested athlete, you couldn't train them as hard as you needed to to get them on the podium. And so that's been the focus of our work for, geez, since 2005 now. And um, I have a very interesting project going on that I want to tell you about, but that's stemmed out of that. 
um, and just started in uh, August. Okay, yeah, tell me, what's the project about? So I'm also the president of the Canadian Sleep Society. So in that role and over my career, especially as a family physician in the early parts of my career, I'm very interested in public health. And so anything that I do, I try and translate out to the general population. So what my work with police and shift workers is to translate that out to um, business travelers, for instance, because there's lots of circadian disruption with jet lag, and then also to the average you know, shift worker. Um, plus, you have to realize that the general population now commutes massively. So they're waking up at five in the morning to go to work. And so this is almost shift work. So when it comes to athletes, we wanted to, I want to learn as much as I can to help the general population be healthier. And so in this journey to sort of develop an approach, interject sleep into the general understanding of health when it comes to, you know, activity and diet, managing lifestyle, et cetera, sleep becomes the absolute foundation of general health. So if you're not sleeping well, you can exercise all you want. You're not going to get the benefit that you're looking for. And if you're not sleeping well and you're on a diet trying to lose weight and look after yourself, you're not going to lose the weight. That This is well established in the medical literature since the 1990s. So sleep is important. And now, what do you think our biggest barrier to sleep is in the world? I guess uh, the constraints of being able to work enough, make enough time for kids and family and uh, still sleep enough? No. It's the device that people are going to use to listen to this podcast. Oh, the so smartphones are the most It's technology. Yeah. So technology is a very serious public health problem. So in my journey to try and really understand what are truly the implications, are they as bad as you know old people like me think, I have now started working with Red Bull and the eSport teams. Um, So that's the video gaming. So that's the ultimate example of a lifestyle that literally ignores sleep. And what's fascinating is the eSport athletes are quite focused on being healthy and really understand the importance of sleep because these are the highest level eSport athletes in the world. And um, they're, you know, well-supported, well-funded. And um, Red Bull really wants to know, okay, how do we manage and help manage these guys so that they perform at optimum? And we know sleep is important. So this is a fat, when, when fascinating. You, when, you, um, yeah, when you say esports, you mean like World of Warcraft players or Fortnite yes. and that kind of thing? Yes. Yeah, Counter-Strike. We all, these are serious gamers. And gaming is a massive industry in the world now. It's the fastest growing sport in the world. So it's it's something I have no knowledge of. I've never played a video game in my life. Um, I don't spend a lot of time on technology. You know, I'm a you know I'm a luddite when it comes to technology. I do as little as possible. So it was a fascinating thing to jump into, and for me, an opportunity to understand the future generations. Like, what is going to be the implication, and what interventions can we start to think about in the future to help people? Because technology ain't going away nor are energy drinks. They're here to stay. They right. are part of our life. So we, so doctors can't say, don't do it. We have to have better strategies for, okay, you know, here's how to do it safely. So that's my next journey in uh, the research and public health domain. Yeah, that's really interesting. I could see like, you know, Red Bull, uh, you know, stop consuming it, let's say, you know, eight hours before you're going to go to sleep. Whenever that time is, is uh, maybe a guideline, just making something up. But 
that might be something that uh, would allow people, for instance, maybe to use Red Bull, but not to have it impact their sleep negatively, or maybe yeah. have no more than two in a given 24-hour period or something. Yeah, and that's what we do with coffee now. And um, so, I'm, but but what is interesting is that Red Bull is invested in understanding these things and getting their athletes to peak performance. And um, we're working with them, and they're very, you know, very supportive of our desire to understand um, the, you know, the downstream consequences and how do we help the public, you know, do these things, um, you know, more strategically and safely, and so we don't end up with children who, you know, are truly talking heads, you know. <laughs> well, very good. Well, Charles, we're um, we're close to being out of time. So, what what are some good resources for listeners so they can find out more about your work and find out more well, about uh, you know, better sleeping in general? Yeah. So, we have a very extensive website, and it's www center for sleep and center is r e dot com. People can go on that to see all the research that we do and uh, and whatnot. And then the two really good global resources for sleep education are the National Sleep Foundation in the United States and the Canadian Sleep Society. And all you have to do is search those names. Um, And they give tremendous resources um, for sleep education that are balanced um, and without conflict of interest. Okay. Well, excellent. Well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. And it's kind of odd, you know, sleep's been with us as long as we've been around and as long as humanity has been around, but yet we're just now understanding it better. So yeah, it is fascinating. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you very much. You're listening to the future tech health podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.